Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. I hope this finds you doing well. I know it has been an extremely stressful week. As if 2020 couldn't get crazier, right? But I think what's going on is extremely important. It's always good to hold those who govern and those who are in charge accountable for their actions in order to let them know when things need to change. And I think this is no exception. And I'm very proud of the protesters and what's going on. So keep it up. Black Lives Matter. And as strange as it is right now to talk about movies, I also know that some people have started listening to some back episodes of my podcast as escapism. So I want to be sure I keep that up. Yesterday, I had to do some writing. And this is like the last week that I really felt like writing about movies. It just seems so meaningless in the scheme of things right now. First with the pandemic and now with this. But it was good to force myself to recharge, focus on something else for a few hours. So I'm hopeful that I can do that for you with this and also myself. I think it's very good to talk about things that give us joy or inspire us or make us come together, which is something that cinema has always done. It's a communal experience. Even right now when we can't go to the theater to see movies, it still bonds us online and I think it's important to honor that. So obviously I completely understand if you're gonna skip this week if you're just not in the mood but if you are I want to give you some great recommendations so I'm just gonna jump right in. Today I'm gonna start in with a movie I actually wrote about a few weeks ago that is available right now on Hulu for you to find. It is called The Painter and the Thief. It's a documentary and it's extraordinarily well done. It's one of the best movies of 2020 that I've seen so far this year. Trading an abusive ex who threatened to kill her in Berlin for a supportive husband in Norway, painter Barbara Kisilkova was eager to start fresh in a new country, crafting two incredible works of art that were featured at the Gallery Nobel in Oslo in 2015 Just as her career began to rise, the unthinkable happened, as her two most important paintings were carefully removed from frames, which had secured them with roughly 200 nails, and stolen in a brazen heist in broad daylight. Both shocked and intrigued, after the two thieves were identified from the video footage and sentenced to 75 days in jail, Barbara went to the courthouse to meet the only robber who showed up for trial in the form of an addict named Carl Bertil Nordland, the so-called mastermind of the heist. Confessing that he'd been on a sleepless four-day amphetamine-charged drug binge and had no idea what he had done with the paintings after he made the impulsive decision to steal them, when Barbara asks him what it was about the two works that made him want to take them. An apologetic Carl Bertil tells her simply, 
they were beautiful. Fascinated by one another, when she invites him to sit for a portrait she's suddenly inspired to paint, he cautiously agrees. Slightly suspicious of her motives, as the two begin to spend more time together, they form an unlikely bond that is as powerful as it is sudden. After Barbara breaks down the walls, the private man, an intelligent former special needs teacher with a traumatic past, has erected to protect himself when he breaks down in front of the portrait she has painted of him. A contemplative, tender, and moving documentary that won the special jury prize for creative storytelling at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. When Magnus documentarian Benjamin Rhee set out to craft a film about art theft, he had no idea that it would evolve into an intimate, affecting study of friendship between two lonely souls who've been through so much. Originally drawn to the topic because he felt that it could be a study of contrasts, where the socially elevated art industry with a lot of cultural capital meets lower class criminals with rough backgrounds. Once he read that Barbara had requested to paint her thief, he knew deep down that this was the right subject to pursue. Initially capturing the two during what he estimates to be the fourth time they met, as he chronicled their relationship over the course of three years, Ree's thesis appears to have changed many times over. And to his credit, as captivated as the filmmaker is by the duo, we find that we are right there with him for each surprising twist in this study which proves yet again that fiction is no match for the unpredictability of facts. From jaw-dropping pronouncements that catch up with our subjects later on and are played back to us, only after we find out what has happened to them. While sometimes we're slightly confused by the jumps forwards and backwards in time, we remain thoroughly engrossed from start to finish. Wanting to know more about key facts that were slid into the humanistic tapestry weave by Rhee, I actually found myself wishing that the film had been even longer in order to better understand the two subjects. Optimistic that the documentary will encourage people to take a good long look at their own stigmas and preconceptions and remind everyone that you can still be a good, kind person despite your troubles. Carl Bertil's hope is well executed in Rhee's finished product, which makes you think long and hard about the duality of man and nature versus nurture. And while, and this is a pet peeve of mine, I think that the dialogue would have been even more impactful if the film's subtitles were yellow, since the small white type threatens to melt into the background of the scenes, the emotional work easily holds us in its thrall. A soaring ode to the power of human connection, kindness, and empathy, as well as the ways in which art can heal us and bring us together by reaching inside to touch us on a level that can't be accessed with words alone. Despite some of its narrative stumbles, this film is truly a balm, and I think it's exactly what we need right now, making us wonder about the past of those whom we walk by on a daily basis. The Painter and the Thief is the type of movie we need to bring us together, making Rees' unpredictable documentary one of the most surprising and quietly arresting works 
I've seen so far in 2020. So I do hope that you click over to Hulu if you're a subscriber and check it out because I do not think you'll be disappointed. It is constantly surprising and very compelling. This week for Blackout Tuesday, there was some controversy about exactly how to go about it. There were those infamous black squares that started to fill up on Instagram that were supposed to show your alignment with Black Lives Matter, and some people thought it also meant that they weren't supposed to post anything on social media for 24 hours. Other people said, no, what's important is amplifying other voices, especially voices of people of color, and recommending films by Black filmmakers, books by Black writers, and just above all, giving your voice a break or stop promoting your voice, so to speak, and instead amplify others. And when I was putting together a short list of films to recommend, I just put up like four on Instagram, but started a thread. I mean, it was a short thread. I also didn't want to take away from other people's voices, so I just kept my thread pretty short for the day. But I shared some of my favorite films or ones I would recommend, titles of albums that I think are wonderful, my favorite book by Toni Morrison, and information to that respect. And one thing I kept noticing is that most of the movies being recommended were extremely hard-hitting, as they should be, and... There were some other people saying what they really wanted right now was just a little bit of escape. And I couldn't wait to recommend some great movies that could do just that by Black artists. And so this week, I wanted to go ahead and recommend two of those movies that I thought of, I think one I did share, to you guys. So the first one that I'm going to recommend here is... Something New, which came out in 2006 from a wonderfully talented filmmaker named Sanaa Hamri. She is from Morocco. She's a filmmaker who's directed everything from television shows like Desperate Housewives and Glee and Nashville 90210 to movies including Something New, as well as another really great romantic comedy called Just Right. And so this week I recommended both Something New and Just Right. But for the purposes of this, I'm going with my favorite, even though I I enjoy both of those, which is Something New, which, again, came out in 2006, and it stars Sanaa Lathan, who is an incredibly talented actress who I've enjoyed for years. She, of course, is probably most famous for love and basketball, but she's been in everything from Contagion, yes, that movie that everyone is watching like mad this year, to Out of Time, which is another title I recommended earlier in these podcasts, and I really hope that you checked it out. It's a great one. Something New also stars Simon Baker, who, of course, is most famous to American audiences for his work on The Mentalist. The film also stars Donald Faison from Scrubs and Clueless. 
Alfred Woodard is in it, Blair Underwood. It's got a very, very good cast. It's a romantic comedy about a workaholic named Kenya that's played by Sanaa Lathan, who is trying to make partner at her firm and starting to realize that she's getting older and would like to meet that special someone. She's incredibly choosy and vows to be more open this year. And in doing so, the one thing she knows that she doesn't think she can change is her distaste for white men. She said she cannot date a white guy. And this gets put to the test when her friends set her up with a gorgeous landscape architect played by none other than Simon Baker, who shows up and she is visibly uncomfortable at this LA Starbucks. She is just wanting to be anywhere but there. It's like the worst coffee date you can imagine. And when he does sort of zero in on what her discomfort is all about, which is race, she doesn't want to address that and thinks that's probably the last time she will see Brian, played by Baker, only to discover that he did the backyard of her friend's place, which she is just in awe over. And she's been wanting to have somebody come in and take a look at her just insane backyard of her new place. And Brian offers to go ahead and do that. So she hires this guy that her friends were hoping she would date. And of course there is some romantic tension right off the bat. He is flirtatious. And of course it's Simon Baker. So this gorgeous, you know, sun-drenched guy from Australia, he's playing an American here. But he, you know, there's a lot of the female gaze is used as he is sweating and working in the backyard of Kenya's place. And soon those two are starting to get closer and Kenya finds herself slipping a little bit on her rule of no white guys. And the movie really cleverly and very comedically decides to look at racism, which occurs when she starts dating a man of a different race versus, say, her brother who dates these young bimbos or the looks that other people give her and that kind of thing and some of the jokes that come into play. I actually saw the movie at the theater with my friend Tanisha, who is married to a white guy. She is black. And when we left, she was telling me all these stories about how much the movie got right and how much she could relate to it. And then let me know that after she got home from the theater, she actually took him back to the movie at the next showing so they could watch it together and laugh at the same thing she had just told me about and it became one of her favorite movies. So it always kind of hit a personal place for me and reminded me of how much it did the same for my friend. So I've always enjoyed it for that reason and it's just a great romantic comedy. I am partial to romantic comedies not only for the golden age or the screwball era but of course the 80s and 90s which is when I grew up with them there's kind of been a dearth of good romantic comedies since the year 2000 we've had sporadic ones here and there but 
It was so good to see one in something new that was smart. It was told from the female point of view. The film is written by Chris Turner, who was a writer on everything from the Bernie Mac show to Sister Sister. She is still writing and producing and working on shows like The Romanoffs and Greenleaf, and the script is just great for this. It was also produced predominantly by women. It was edited by a woman. So there's a lot of strong female talent behind the scenes on this. It's also beautiful looking. It was shot by Shane Hurlbut, who I think most people now know from that viral video of Christian Bale going off on Shane. Uh, I cannot do my great Christian Bale impression on the set of the Terminator movie as he went off on Shane Hurlbut. But Shane is a remarkably talented lensman and this one is just simply gorgeous. So it's beautiful to look at. It's perfect for summer because of all of the beautiful, breathtaking outdoor scenery. And I think you will greatly enjoy something new, which luckily you can find right now on the Stars Channel. Our third film of the week is Dan in Real Life from filmmaker Peter Hedges that came out in 2007 and is currently available on Showtime. As hard as it is to find someone you're compatible with, it's even harder to secure that ideal romantic mate when the timing is off. While the old adage of all's fair and love and war is a great theory in principle, it's sometimes one that genuinely caring individuals have trouble following. Simply put, some of us, and I am certainly guilty of this, do not want to steal another's boyfriend or girlfriend, no matter how much we feel that they're with the wrong person. However, for family advice columnist Dan Burns, played by Steve Carell, it goes even further than that. Not only is the object of his affection dating someone else, that someone else happens to be his brother Mitch, played by Dane Cook. Feeling that he can't tempt fate by trying to, as he phrases it, win the lottery twice, the widowed Dan has basically given up on the idea of love after his wife passed away four years earlier. Instead, he spends his days as a tirelessly devoted father of three precocious daughters, spending more time than they would like, interfering in their personal and love lives until he's faced with his own after journeying with the girls to a family reunion weekend in Rhode Island. When Dan meets Cute, with beautiful Marie, played by the wonderful Juliette Binoche, in a bookstore as he helps her choose a book that meets a highly selective yet rambling criteria that she had given him. The two click instantly and spend the morning chatting until he manages to secure a phone number, only to find out when he happily arrives back at the family house that Marie was rushing off to meet her boyfriend Mitch, as in his brother Mitch. Not wanting to jeopardize his relationship with his younger brother, whom he loves, Dan tries to keep his distance from the winning Marie, who manages to impress every member of the Burns family in the overly crowded home, and tugging at his heartstrings even more, bonds with his three daughters. 
And I remember when I saw this, Steve Carell was known mostly for the Anchorman movies and his work on The Office. So I was initially worried about the prospect of a romantic comedy that cast the actor that plays the admittedly annoying character, Steve Carell, alongside Dane Cook, opposite as the love interest as part of a love triangle involving Juliette Binoche. But she is so natural and laid back in the role that she helps bring them to an equally realistic level. She reminds the comedians that less is often more instead of the medium's usual tendency to utilize overly broad humor. It's that rare film that, unlike, say, Meet the Parents, actually celebrates family in a way that goes against sort of the cynical, embarrassing mentality of most contemporary American cinema. And the movie overall just proved to be a wonderful surprise. It sneaked up and won me over as one of my favorite romantic films of 2007. And that was a really dark year at the Cineplex. It was the year we had No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood and Zodiac. So this movie kind of sneaked up and just charmed me 100%. It's one that I actually showed in my screening series, and I still remember the reaction of one patron who, after the movie, was like, there is just no way that Steve Carell should be the leading man or the romantic lead and it's just so ridiculous that anybody would find him attractive and that kind of thing. And after watching this and watching the reaction of the other women in the theater, I sort of looked out and said, okay, who finds Steve Carell attractive now? And like every female hand and a few male hands just shot straight up and it was very very funny it sort of showed that no we don't need every guy to look like you know George Clooney or whatever they think that we want no he's charming he's sort of every man he's cute and more than that he's just nice and the way he looks at her and it's just it's just a winning performance and definitely anticipates his work in another great movie i would highly recommend called seeking a friend at the end of the world which oddly enough I watched at the beginning of this pandemic and kind of like going for gallows humor and was totally surprised by how much it affected me. So these might make like an interesting pairing for a double feature of, hey, Steve Carell can sneak up on you and be kind of dreamy, I guess. Dan in Real Life was made by Peter Hedges, writer-director. Actually, Peter co-wrote this film with Pierce Gardner, and Hedges is most famous for his screenplays for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, About a Boy, which is another movie I recommended earlier in Watch with Jen, and he also made Pieces of April, which marked his directorial debut. I actually saw that movie at a press screening where he and star Derek Luke 
gave a really interesting Q&A afterwards and I spoke to him a little bit he was just such a charming kind man and that's what he's sort of known for and that's what he continues to get across in his movies. His films always have great affection for his characters and humanity just generally shines through from start to finish. One interesting thing about this movie is It's an early one that features a great little cameo by an actress we would all come to know and love named Emily Blunt, who would soon marry Steve Carell's co-star from The Office, John Krasinski. The film also benefits greatly from an earthy, cool jazz-influenced soundtrack by Norwegian musician Sandra Lerche that punctuates the events on screen in a subtle and moody way. They show up at the end of it and perform. So it's just a nice, easygoing, it's a great like Saturday night or Sunday afternoon movie. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find more charming or sophisticated romantic comedy fare than Dan in Real Life and Something New right now on streaming that both of the films were underrated and I think they would be perfect for a nice summer evening. So I hope you check those out. Our fourth film is one that I discovered in 2018 and fell in love with right away. And it was also one of the ones that I chose as one of the best movies that I discovered that year for the blog Rupert Pupkin Speaks. That movie can be found right now on HBO Max. It is Running on Empty from 1988. Director Sidney Lumet. The film stars River Phoenix, Christine Lottie, Judd Hirsch, and Martha Plimpton. And while it's nowhere near as famous as some of Lumet's other titles like 12 Angry Men and Dog Day Afternoon or Network or Serpico, it's one that I think deserves a bigger following than it has. The film that finally landed River Phoenix a well-deserved Oscar nomination, although it's often overlooked in favor of other titles from his enviable filmography when you say the name Sidney Lumet. Running on Empty is an unsung and understated masterpiece from among his incredible career, and it's a title that had me reaching for tissues upon hearing just the first few notes of composer Tony Matola's pitch-perfect main theme. Having been on the run from the FBI with his anti-war activist parents and younger brother for as long as he has been alive, River Phoenix's lead is old enough to no longer find changing his name or hair color, home and school every six months to be an exciting adventure. A talented pianist who immediately catches the eye of his new music teacher as well as his beautiful daughter, played by Phoenix's then off-screen girlfriend, Martha Plimpton. As he begins to come of age and discover his own independence, Phoenix begins to butt heads with his stubborn father, played by Judd Hirsch. A moving, naturalistic, emotionally potent drama from screenwriter Naomi Foner, who has written such films as Bee Season, based on the best-selling novel, and Losing Isaiah. 
She is the mother of Maggie Gyllenhaal and Jake Gyllenhaal. Running on Empty builds completely off the strength of its characters and the actors playing them. And it might just boast the best performance of River Phoenix's short yet unforgettable career. Last week, I mentioned River's name in passing when I was talking about To Die For, which starred River's younger brother, Joaquin. And it also paved the way for Joaquin Phoenix's career and his own Oscar win. So it's an interesting little callback, unintentional that we're getting another movie featuring a stellar performance by one of the Phoenixes and this River's Oscar nomination. It was a film that I'd always heard of, but just never got around to seeing, partly because it was kind of hard to find. Every once in a while, Turner Classic Movies will play it, so do be on the lookout for that if you don't have HBO Max. But it's one that I was able to finally track down used at like a half-price bookstore. I found it there and just bought it. So it's in the snapper case. It's one of those movies that never was graduated into a newer release. I think it is now available on Warner Archive Collection as sort of a manufactured on-demand title. So there are a few different ways for you to find this film. You can also rent it on demand from a number of digital retailers, and it's well worth doing so. It also played differently to me because I saw it as an adult after remembering in Minnesota there was that mother who had herself been, as these people were in the 70s, political activists and protesters whose actions went overboard and led to a death. In Minnesota, we had such a woman, a housewife, and she had lived in hiding for a number of decades until she was identified and arrested after all of those years. And it was very shocking. So I saw that happen when I think I was, I think I believe it had occurred just as I was graduating from high school. So around the late 90s, perhaps. And I didn't see this movie, like I said, until a couple decades later. And now I was closer in age to the parents that are in the movie. I think it might have played differently if I would have seen it when I was the River Phoenix character's age. And I think it's very important when that happens because sometimes you find movies at the right time. And in doing so, it brought back the complexities of that case and also the attitudes that we all had back in the 90s towards it. Or I think when you're younger, everything just seems very cut and dried, very black and white. And now it wasn't. So that was very interesting as well. I also think with something like this, particularly the Vietnam era and events that are being chronicled on screen that took place before I was born, having had something in my real life that suddenly made it a little bit more accessible was also important. Otherwise, I think we just look at these events as being in the abstract. It's only later when you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to school now with people who did lose their dad in Vietnam or that 
did know people who were political activists in the 70s or there's a way to somehow make this history a little bit more relatable to your life. I think that is very important. Obviously film can do that and it does that but having a little bit of firsthand experience even if it is something that's as minor as a huge story that broke when you were a teenager and remembering that years later can enhance our understanding of what's going on on screen and i think this is a movie that i would recommend to anyone of all ages I think it would be fascinating to show it to teenagers, especially with right now with politically motivated protests and questions of how to enact change in a positive way or just how these events are carried on throughout the generations make this really interesting movie to revisit. I just like another one I love from the 80s, which is The Falcon and the Snowman, which I did see as a teenager and really responded to. It was always one of my favorites. And that was made by another great filmmaker, a contemporary of Sidney Lumet, which was John Schlesinger. So I would say that those were two you can watch together if you're looking for political activism in the 70s starter kit you can go with those two movies that were made and you can also discuss if and how they would have been made differently had they been released around the time that the events were happening i think that they definitely would have they would have probably been a little bit more incendiary and in this case it is a tale of a family and wanting what's best for that family and also knowing that sooner or later you might have to let go of somebody you're super close to in order for you to both live the lives that you want or deserve so it's a really moving film the music is incredible like i mentioned the theme for the film will bring you to tears i had seen it in 2018 and it was causing an emotional reaction to me right away but then watching it again in order to write something short about for rupert popkin speaks all i had to do was hit play and as soon as that theme hit just the waterworks started and i was reaching for the kleenex box so do be aware of that, that if you are somebody who, like me, is very affected by music, you might want to have the tissues handy. But don't let that deter you from watching this extraordinary film. Check out Running on Empty. Our final film for the week is Rafiki. Not to be confused with Rafifi, which is a French crime classic, and it's an amazing film in its own right. Do go ahead and see Rafifi at your earliest convenience. But no, I am referring to Wanuri Kaihu's Rafiki, which is R-A-F-I-K-I, and it came out in 2018. It is a jubilant Kenyan coming-of-age romance. The film floods the viewer's senses with a celebration of color, cheer, and song in the fun, fierce, and frivolous style of what the filmmaker has dubbed Afro Bubblegum, which is also the name of her company. It's Black Orpheus by way of Monsoon Wedding, 
with a little do-the-right-thing seasoned throughout its neighborhood scenes. Rafiki is based on Monica Arakdi Nieko's short story, Jambala Tree. Rafiki was initially banned in its native Kenya and is centered on a headstrong young woman named Kina, played by Samantha Mugatsia, dedicating her days to hanging out with her best friend, who declares his intentions by stating that she'll make a good wife even when he hooks up with other girls, and his circle of friends who treat her as just one of the boys. Kina suddenly finds herself drawn to Ziki, played by Sheila Maniva, the alluring daughter of her father's political rival. Both fathers are running for the same political office. First spending time together tentatively after Kina catches Ziki and her friends pulling down her father's campaign posters. Soon, away from the influence and watchful eye of their friends and family in their tight-knit Nairobi neighborhood, the young women dare each other to do something more with their lives than just go from good Kenyan girls to good Kenyan wives as expected. Pulled together like a magnet by an undeniable attraction, they're not initially sure what to do about, especially in a country where homosexuality is against the law. As lingering looks develop into something more and soon transform into a romance, Kina and Ziki's burgeoning relationship is threatened by the oppressive homophobia surrounding them. It's an upbeat story nonetheless. At its core, Rafiki is a sweet-natured romance about finding out exactly who you are and what you're capable of while simultaneously falling in love at the same time. Bold and beautiful with a keen sense of time and place, Caillou has created something truly special with Rafiki which, despite its very straightforward plot and limited character development, perhaps stemming from its origins as a short story, serves its audience both as a terrific film, as well as a reminder to the home country Caillou cherishes that love is love. A truly feminist work, Rafiki is as anchored by female talent on its pop song heavy soundtrack as it is via the behind-the-scenes crew who helped bring the first Kenyan film to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival to life. From the way Caillou plays with splashes of color and texture to give her picture an ethereal pastel hue, as a nod to Ziki's hair, to Rafiki's overall ambitious world-building, which drops us right into the neighborhood of slopes and treats us like a resident. The film announces an exciting voice in world cinema for us to keep an eye on, successfully suing the government by arguing that banning the film infringed upon her freedom of expression. In a smash week-long engagement, Rafiki played packed houses and managed to actually outgross huge Hollywood hits like Black Panther, exceedingly well-acted in a thoroughly naturalistic style. Although it ends a moment too soon to adequately pay off on its otherwise moving build-up, it's just a minor misstep in an otherwise powerful movie, perfectly capturing the heightened sensory state of falling in love and world be damned. Winuri Caillou's Rafiki is as vivacious as it is courageous. It is a film that I first saw via film movement, 
and it is available on that format as well, Film Movement Plus. You can also rent it. It's also easy to find in Canopy if that is a service that your library has allowed you to have access to. I would check that out. It's a great service. You are not going to run out of wonderful movies to see on Canopy. And Rafiki is proof of that. Again, I do want to thank you so much for listening. And I do hope that these choices offer you either some escapism or some great examples of voices that I really wanted to amplify of terrific black female filmmakers and also give you something to put today's protests and activism in a little bit more context by going back and looking at a movie by Sidney Lumet. So a few of these were specifically topical but also can just be pulled right out of that equation and give you something in order for your brain to recharge and then go right back reading the news as we all have been doing. So just to recap, this week I recommended The Painter and the Thief, which you can find on Hulu. Something New is now playing on Stars. Dan in Real Life is available on Showtime. Running on Empty is on HBO Max. And you can find Rafiki on Canopy. So I do want to thank you for checking out this episode and I do want to apologize if my voice was kind of in and out. Allergies are at an all-time high right now in Phoenix, so I was maybe not the sharpest tool in the shed today, but I wanted to share these movies with you. So do take care and I will talk to you next time. I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd, and this is Watch With Jen.